It was interesting because of the snarl that happened on the cover, and I, I think this has been reported, <laughs> but let's, let's cover it again. So the game is Campaigns of 1777, but the lead article that I wrote on the topic was Year of Decision 1777, and somehow that stuck. So. <laughs> Hey gang, it's Harold, and here's another podcast. The San Diego gaming community is full of interesting people who are doing interesting things. This podcast is singularly composed of an interview with game designer Trevor Bender. We will discuss his interest in counterfactual history, his work on Labyrinth Awakening, and his future plans. Thanks for listening. Trevor Bender started wargaming at age 11 when he was introduced to Panzer Blitz. Many other Avalon Hill titles followed as well as homegrown tweaks of existing designs. His first published material appeared in Military History Magazine, then later in The General, The Board Gamer, Operations, C3I, and Strategy and Tactics magazines. His first game publications were scenarios for the great campaigns of the American Civil War system. In 2014, Trevor had a conversation with Volko Runka about using the Labyrinth game to model the Arab Spring. A two-year effort followed that resulted in the first expansion called Labyrinth Awakening, and will shortly be followed by Labyrinth Forever War. He's also working on a six-player coin game on the very recent Syrian Civil War. Trevor has a bachelor's in history and political science from BYU and a master's in national security from Georgetown. He's an active volunteer in Scouts BSA. He's been married for 28 years and has four kids and just added his first grandchild. We'll start this interview with a question about how he came to work on Labyrinth Awakening with Volko Runga. I, what I'd like to just describe is the trip we had to GMT weekend at the warehouse out of in September 2014. We had a chance to ride up in your Tesla, you and I and Treg, and it was an eye-opening experience for me in many ways because you were already involved in 17, excuse me, Liberty or Death. Yes. Liberty or Death. And uh, Treg was just publishing his murder mystery book, Legal Thriller. And so I sat in the back seat while you guys chatted uh, about these things on, on, on a portion of the trip, our six-hour drive, including our, our stop for burritos on the way, <laughs> and the recharge, the recharge, Tesla. Recharge, yes. And uh, I sat in awe because both of you, kind of in midlife, had published something, a, a significant accomplishment of putting time into, in Treg's case, a 10-year project to write the book, and in your case, I think it was a couple years uh, on Liberty or Death. And quite frankly, uh, somebody who was not known in the gaming industry just saying, I'm coming back into gaming. I'm going to design a game. There's this coin series. I love the topic of the American Revolution. And you went forward and did it. You know, 70,000 words, I think, was the total Right, count. in the box, yes. And uh, I remember you and I had a conversation at the time where I was heavily involved in Boy Scouts, still am, as a volunteer in Boy Scouts of America, and in my own church and uh, family, a father of four, very active in the, the family activities. And I came to you and said, you know, Harold, I wish I had the amount of time that you had, that I could do a project like that. And your response was point on and said, well, you have the same amount of time in your day as I've got in mine. <laughs> <laughs> and it, I know it wasn't meant to be flippant, but it changed a direction in my mind and in my heart about how I use my time. And so we, we traveled up there, and we, we did our thing at the weekend in the warehouse, played some great games, met Volko, met Gene. Um, this was new to both of us, I think. And uh, I had a moment when I was standing next to Volko right by the entrance to the warehouse, and I just mentioned to him, you know, your, your game Labyrinth is a great political simulation, political military simulation on current events. And it covers right up to where the Arab Spring began in late 2010, 2011, 2012, uh, which then later, of course, transitioned to some very horrific civil wars in Syria and other places. And uh, it could be a test model to show how that Arab Spring occurred with just some very minor modifications of the rules and some new event cards. 
and I shared that just like that, you know, what, 45 seconds. And he says, that's a very interesting idea. Why don't you run with it? Give me a couple page synopsis of what you're thinking. Start designing some cards. And, 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 and to further the context, Volko, you don't know me, but. Yeah, right? exactly. And that's what it was. I never met him before. Not at you know, WBC or anything else. I, this was our first interaction. Of course, he's an East Coast guy. We're West Coast guys. You know, don't see each other as much. So, um he placed faith in somebody as a total stranger. I, of course, I articulated a, a vision for where this game could go and using an existing model that he had a lot of faith in. And, of course, if you go back to the history of Labyrinth, Gene, of course, was the one that came up with the idea and challenged Volko for that to be his next game. I think he had done Wilderness War before, and I believe Labyrinth was the next game he designed after about a 10-year break. And uh, <clears throat> something that, of course, uh, it, with his experience at CIA was a great topic to uh, to bring forward with the training he had done um um and then later on of course with the columbia game on uh, the first coin game so uh, fast forward and uh, next week i quickly got an email <clears throat> prepared my analysis of what i thought the arab spring would look like on a labyrinth map board sent that off got a second thumbs up continued the process very quickly realized that this is not just a variant where you publish 20 cards and add it to the 120 <laughs> cards of labyrinth that's not going to work and it was amazing to me the flow of ideas that came to me uh, over the next couple of weeks um, with the whole idea of adding awakening and reaction markers to influence war of ideas and jihad, which are the two primary operations from the U.S. in uh, jihadist camps in the two-player game of Labyrinth. And that added a whole new element. And then the idea that when these awakening reaction markers begin to pile up in a country, that you're changing populations, you're changing how the people of Egypt, you're reflecting how the people of Egypt are changing their viewpoint towards towards a certain government, towards a certain ideology. And all those countries across the Middle East are represented on the map. <clears throat> and it, it was a perfect model. And so each at the end of each turn, you'd check to see if there was polarization taking place where countries would march towards a different ideology or the other. And uh, that was modeled very well. Um, and then there was the challenge as I continued to design cards of the Civil War, in Syria, and in, in Yemen, um, in Libya, and, other, and, and the potential for other places to have gone down that path. And uh, I was watching a game with my son who was playing in soccer in San Marcos, California, and I just sit in my lawn chair, and boom, the idea came up. Have rules specific to civil war, or cells could be auto-recruited like they could in a regime change country, um, and then have an end-of-turn sequence where there's attrition where the, the militia would fight the... Um, the, the cells there and the militia was a new piece we introduced into labyrinth which wasn't there before isn't, isn't it funny how those ideas can come to you at the strangest times right i mean that's the equivalent of i was in the shower and right? exactly yeah. yeah or at the restaurant and got out the napkin and drew out my plan on <clears throat> which then changed history yeah so uh that took me through about six months before i had the full 120 cards developed and, and quite frankly there's about 10 cards that continue on in the first game into the second things like special forces that's the, that's you know it's your standard uh, one factor card um and 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 so we published that and we got it done we play tested it uh joel topin uh, acted as the developer for us and put it on vassal very quickly we got a bunch of play testers we ran through it multiple times uh, actually came up with about seven scenarios for the game um, and a variety of factors, various start times, campaign game where you could combine the first deck with the second deck, etc. And uh, it put it out on P500. So that was about two years after I started the process that we actually put on P500. And it because of it being an inexpensive game, it was priced at $35 base, which meant at P500 it was 24 So not a very tough target for somebody to put a credit card down and reserve that. And if my memory serves correct, we got to 2,000 orders within about two months. You know, GP 500 within the first few days. It was very quick. But also a testament to the success of the original game, Agreed. the interest on the topic, Volko's work, right? I mean, all those things make that easier. They do. They totally do, especially since nobody knew who I was. <laughs> right, right. Well, I mean, it happened for me yeah. with Liberty or Death, right? I, I that that went through p500 that physically sold out after it was released in 30 days had nothing to do with me <laughs> right it had everything to do with volco and the coin history it was interesting too uh because of the fact that it's a current events game and there really isn't a genre on current events games we're starting to see a little bit more now um and when i say current events it's not like the falcon war occurs and then five years later you publish a game on it that's a very discreet event 
this labyrinth is daily headline news. Um, you know, I'm working on labyrinth three right now. We, we have a card that represents the Sri Lanka attack that with that, that card was developed just a day after, uh, when the Paris attack occurred in labyrinth, we designed the card that very same day. You know, I, as for, in terms of card driven games, this is happening real time, listening to NPR as I drive to work, doing research and on, uh, on the internet at during lunch hour, you know, Wikipedia is my favorite friend. It's just real good to get information real quick on these events and it's updated real time. Of course, it's a challenge. It, did you do it right? Did you portray it right? And, you know, history will tell, but it does help us to think about these struggles in a different way. You're seeing, you know, Labyrinth is a two player game. You have the U S player representing Western forces, and then you have the Giotis elements, um, the Giotis player representing a variety of factions that are, 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 are trying to portray their their vision of the world and you have that conflict and the event cards are showing events that occurred but allow us as players to understand better the strategies of the two po- opponents that are represented in a big scale they allow us to figure out what they're trying to accomplish and and perhaps think about solutions opportunities for success or opportunities to look at this conflict in a different way and so it becomes a teaching game in that sense. And I, I actually had the pleasure of corresponding with different professors in both the United States and in Europe about using games like Labyrinth and Coin to teach their students these these current modern-day conflicts. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think about um, the resurgence of interest in the Cold War. Um, do you remember we used to play these big, big NATO versus Warsaw Pact tactical strategic operational games and you and i've played some recently right some of the modern modern battles uh quads but and i and i don't know if it's a resurgence in the interest but we certainly are seeing game companies now produce games that took place in the or or hypothetically could have taken place in the 80s right yeah 1985 and that's not too different right you're right. And in that case, it's interesting because now we're looking at it 35 years later um, and, and being able to look back at the force pools, the options that were there. Perhaps now the Ar- Soviet archives are opened up in the mid-90s, and, and that allowed for additional research, too, on the state of Soviet forces. So very interesting. So awakening wasn't the end. It's, uh, you're, you're, you're moving on to the next, uh, the next chapter yeah. in, in Labyrinth. Right? So essentially we're on a sequence of five-year chapters. So Awakening covered 2010 to 2015. And so Labyrinth 3, which we, in discussions with Gene at the last GMT weekend at the warehouse a couple weeks ago, we decided to name it Labyrinth, the Forever War. So the first one's Labyrinth, the Global War and Terror, then Labyrinth, the Awakening. Now this one's Labyrinth, the Forever War. With the, the idea being, from both sides' perspective, there is a great amount of fatigue uh, on this ongoing global war on terror and how it's being portrayed. So it begins in 2015 with, with ISIS at its high watermark. It's got significant fiefdoms in both Iraq and Syria. Um, a caliphate established in, in game terms. And you have the U.S. applying a tremendous amount of air power to reduce that and some special forces and things of that nature with the backdrop of a significant multi-faction civil war going on in Syria and an unstable Iraqi government still trying to figure out what it's doing out the U.S. has left, although now the U.S. is returning with significant pressure from Iranian elements. And so that's the backdrop for the beginning of uh, Labyrinth of Forever War. Then uh, two years later, you have Donald Trump elected as president, <laughs> which adds an entertainment value and a very chaotic decision-making process that in game terms allows for a lot of possibilities. In Awakening, we had this this card... Uh, the smartphones card that made it possible for Facebook to be played, which was a huge element in trying to orchestrate some of those revolutions in Egypt and elsewhere as they became more mobilized and organized <coughs> online. The similar concept is uh, what we call Trump tweets. When when Trump is actually tweeting, it allows the play of about 10 other events, mostly U.S., but sometimes jihadist. And uh, so we have three cards that trigger that, and we have fun little tweets from Trump that are <laughs> <laughs> on the card as the, the text with his little face, you know, from right. the tweet Trump. <laughs> right. That's great. That's good. So um, at the same time, we see Playdex interest in Labyrinth, and uh, you worked a lot with Playdex. And I did. So I'm curious about what that experience was like and how different that was 
from the board game experience? Well, it was neat. I met them, meaning Gary Wise and uh, and Joel, at the last GMT weekend where us about eight months ago, and and found we had out. we had uh, we had dinner with them. I think we did at Gene's favorite uh, Oriental restaurant. It's fantastic. Um, it turned out that Playdex headquarters is only a mile away from my house in Vista, California. They're in Vista. I'm in Oceanside, but gee, the border's not even there. You know, we're just right up Melrose, and so. I've had the chance to play Base Labyrinth with Gene, with Gary several times as I, we taught him the new bots that were published in the expansion. And uh, he, he you know toyed around with that for the base game and then looking at artificial intelligence, adapting the bots, and then learning from that going forward. So the latest conversation, I actually drove back from <clears throat> excuse me, a GMT with Gary. So we had five hours in the car coming back to Oceanside Vista area to, to discuss it and their production schedule is such they're still heavily in play tests for base labyrinth. They should roll out that electronically probably late summer, early fall um, was, was what we guess with about a six month process for awakening to come out and then another six months for forever war to come out. So over a year, you'll have all three elements of the labyrinth series published in electronic format. That's interesting because as we speak, they're about to release soon to release Fort Sumter. Yeah. So it seemed like that happened very quickly. A game that has a much lower complexity, I think, right? So have you heard the background of how it occurred? I would love to. <laughs> so, yeah, that you know, of course, uh, uh, Labyrinth was their, their primary project, and it was in a stage where they needed a lot more playtester feedback. And so Gary decided, you know, he, he loved Fort Sumter, shared it with the rest of the, the team there at Playdeck and said, you know, I can just on weekend time turn this game around in a couple months, and that's exactly what he did. <laughs> um, and uh, very quickly, it's just a far less complex game. Absolutely. Much, much yeah. easier to, to program. So. Right, no, I mean, if, if you and I sat down and played it, we'd play it inside 30 minutes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think it has, I, I, I love it myself. It has some very interesting little puzzles to solve, right? But it's a very different animal than Labyrinth. So uh, I have to tell you, I, I bought it when I was up there at GMT and brought it home primarily because my daughter, who's in eighth grade, just did a Civil War simulation. Her history teacher divided up the class north and south, and, and my daughter played Jefferson Davis in the simulation. And so I brought this game home, and I taught her how to play it, and she was teaching me history from the cards. <laughs> it was really fun. <laughs> she recognized the events yeah. in the history. Yep. yep. That's great. Pretty cool. Was she a sympathizer afterwards, or did Oh, she. Uh, oh, about, about playing games. You mean, <laughs> yeah, or, or no, this playing the South. Oh yeah. yeah, you know, she realized the complexities from both sides, and I, it gave me a chance to talk about the numbers of the conflict with her too, and how right. you know the North could win that side, win that conflict just with its hand tied behind its back. It had right. So much more resources. So interesting, yeah. and and uh, you know, a number of games now that have come out on Emancipation, right? Uh, Pax Emancipation, and then we have um, this Guilty Land. From Hollinge Peel, uh, so mm. some very heavy, heavy topics and uh, interesting applications of of what we do, right? To, to to very complex decisions and and socially very complex decisions yes. as well. So, no doubt. Well, that's uh, that's great, and um, you know, I'm I'm looking forward to playing Labyrinth. I I, I got to tell you that I. I learned more about Twilight Struggle after it was on iOS, right? Than I than I knew before, just because it it didn't make mistakes. You know, it told me what the you know it, it reinforced the rules. It does. In fact, one of the things that Gene shared with me is that what we found with the Twilight Struggle publication electronically is that players who were in this electronic world of playing games, but maybe not on the board game side, used would buy the less much less expensive electronic version. And then if they liked it, go buy the more expensive paper version to play face-to-face with, -face with their friends. And so it became a very inexpensive way to test out a game and then, and then buy the physical copy later. Can I share some things that Gary shared with me on now as game designer in terms of how you translate from a board game to an electronic game? There's some challenges there that we as game designers can think about as we design our paper products first and then think about changing them later on. Um, it's very difficult in... Uh, especially in the card-driven game genre, which we're so familiar with that our Playdeck is helping us translate in. It's very difficult for the AI and even for player interaction for to do reaction cards. And so 
in Twilight Struggle, it's a very simple process. I go, you go, and very quick and back and forth. Uh, Labyrinth is the same thing. Uh, once you start add, adding in a lot of reaction cards, you then have to pause to give your opponent a chance to then react and, and give them, do you want to play this card? Which more often than not is a simple no answer, but still it's requiring an interaction which slows down the pace of the game significantly. We know that uh, Playdeck is experimenting how they're going to do Combat Commander in a tactical situation. Uh, how do you do that with defensive fire? You know, a huge reaction element right there. Every space. Yeah, every right. space. And, and and then, and especially when your player is trying to conceal whether he has a fire card or not. Right. You know, so <laughs> it's challenging. He also mentioned that when the AI is developed, this I found this interesting, is that it will, it knows, of course, as do human players, what cards have been played. And so the AI will calculate what are all the potential cards that could be in its opponent's hands without knowing what they really are, and then do the algorithm to see what the best moves would be for the human player. In a more complete way than you and I could normally. Yes, right? and uh, exactly. It can do you know much faster calculations. And, of course, Labyrinth will make that more interesting because you play two cards at a time for each side, and so you have some combinations there that are much more powerful when you, when you have those cards. That's interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by the bots. I think the bots are very one-dimensional historically, and, and I'm talking about the coin bots, which I'm, of which I'm familiar. Mm-hmm. You know, the liberty or death bots make a decision based on a very short-term view of victory conditions and optimization, and they're very predictable. So when you play most of the coin games a lot against the bots, you know what the bots are going to do. And so... If that's solved and that's on a piece of paper and it's static, it doesn't change. The, the opportunity for something that, I don't know if it's AI, or, but, but it's just a little bit smarter, right? I mean, something that's just a little bit smarter inside, inside my iPad uh, will, will yield a much more interesting game. On the other hand, when I play Twilight Struggle against the AI, it does a lot of dumb stuff. <laughs> and and you know so 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 I think it's it's still it's still a static AI to some extent, right? I mean, I don't it, they talk about change, but I'm really not sure how much it changes. You know, I mentioned that to Gary too. There's, I I would think there's a possibility to do updates of the bots. You know, every six months to a year, release right. a more intelligent version. But economically a, for them, right? That doesn't. I mean, you you could do it, and mm-hmm. it would be better for the players. But for them, there's nothing else in it, right? There's, yeah. no, there's no additional revenue stream. So I, I would suspect that we'll have the same Twilight Struggle AI forever. Mm, that's an interesting point. I, I guess they could uh, correct grievous errors if that was yeah. a simple programming oh, sure, solution. Sure. And it's not. I'm yeah. not criticizing them. It's just the nature of the business and what they do. And 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 you know, I I, I, I I'm excited about AI, but I'm not sure that that we have it. I think we, we have something that's smarter, but still static. Well, look at what Mark Herman's done in, um, empire of the sun. So we're on version three, third, which has two different bots now. So there's a case where on the paper format, Mark has updated the bot. So players are buying version three so they can get Erasmus. Is Erasmus two? Is that what he's calling it? So there's an interesting idea there. I wonder if, uh, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, could Playdeck make a, a case for a more advanced bot that players could purchase for a couple bucks? Would there be a business case there? Corrected errors, learned a lot from playing a million more games against itself. And, and is whatever. it worth their time versus yeah. spending the money on whatever? The new stuff. Yeah, on Andy and Abyss or, or Pendragon or Fire in the Lake or, you know, yeah. so it's it's a... It's tough, and you know, the, in the world of limited resources, these choices seem impersonal, but but they're very important. We want these companies to continue and make good choices, right? Yeah. Let me tell you just a side note on the the bots for Awakening, which were developed by Adam Zom. So Adam's also East Coast game designer. I did not know him at all. Voco put him in touch with with me right when I was developing Awakening, and what he was doing was developing a revised bot for the base Labyrinth game which was not a flowchart. I mean, it, it is a flowchart model, but it's different than the coin flowcharts because when you get to a certain point, you then have a table that you reference that determines the priorities of locations. So it's not a map to determine locations. It's based on the strategic situation or the tactical situation at the time. And so um, Jason loved that and shared it with uh, Bruce, and they adopted the same idea. It was a, a table format where you have 
priorities based on the situation, you know, columns rather than a flowchart. Uh, and so we're and cards and the cards too. The yes, right. Yeah, which was another twist on the box. Yeah, I, I love that. I, I I think I'll be interested. I haven't played it. Had they've walked me through it. Uh, I'll be interested to see how different and and less predictable that bot is. And I'm looking forward to some breakthroughs, but I'll tell you that I think it's probably a significant impact on playability for the solo player. Because it's quicker turnaround. I think it'll be quicker and easier to use. Boom, boom, boom. Right. Good point. Much like you've seen in labyrinth. So how is it going for you on developing a bot for South China Sea? Well, I, you know, right now we're, the game's changing dramatically. So we went into, um, um, went into development and and Grayson Page, who worked a tremendous amount on Root, is now the developer oh, on nice. South China Sea. That's great. And really smart, very thoughtful, excellent, excellent developer. So I got I got him involved, recruited him, cut the deal with Gene, and and, and so now he's he's committed. But what happened uh, what happened was, uh, of course, when we started the development, he just ripped it apart. And in a very constructive way, right? And so the game's changing dramatically. So I'm not even thinking about, I'm thinking about it, but I can't do anything solo until we get the game bolted down. So things are moving around. We've made, but, the, but man, the changes are great for playability, <laughs> for, for hand management and choices and, and different paths to victory. It's, it's terrific. So all that to say, I don't know. <laughs> but what I'd like to do is I'd like to have a hand of cards that drives that that drives the machine, right? But then a different hand of cards depending on who's making that decision for either side. So you can so if, if we if we said that it was the president that makes the decision and I'm not sure it always is, but if it's uh Obama versus um Donald Trump, right? Or in China, right? <laughs> yeah. Which general, right? And each general has a different, an admiral has a different view of how those problems should be solved. So um, I'd like to see different hands of cards that are influenced so that you have different paths. Now, it may be in the game we have one hand of cards, but it'd be a very easy thing to, to publish print and play so that people could create their own, uh, create alternative uh, solo systems that would vary. Hmm, interesting. Um, so that that's the idea. We'll, okay. we'll see how that goes. You know, in in uh, there are a tremendous number of bot applications in Euro games, which I know you're not a, you're not ashamed to play. You and I have played <laughs> a handful of uh, many Euro games, but uh, a lot of interesting things happening there that I think we could really um, we could really you know copy uh, and learn from. So uh, so anyway, that's uh, en- enough about me. Your interest in Labyrinth now turns into an interest in Syria and coin. Yeah. Now, my, my first question is, do we, do we call the space that you're covering the Levant, or are you outside the Levant? You could. Uh, it's totally... The, so. Yeah, I'm referring. Oh, you mean like in me as a as a person or the or the coin game? <laughs> no, the, no, the, the the geography. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could. It's it's the whole Syria, Iraq, Fertile Crescent uh, going, uh, starting off with uh, Basra in the south of Iraq, and then coming all the way up through Syria back down to Lebanon and Israel. I want to show you this, Gene. This is the map that I drew two years ago when I first came up with the idea. I took a picture of this and sent it to Jason two months ago, and we, I guess, had three editions of this map, and now it looks like this. You know, you guys are pretty smart. <laughs> this is based on two travel maps that I bought from Syria and Iraq and, you know, taped them together. I like this. And drew it out, figure out the population, you know, the ethnic areas, the cities. So I really appreciate Jason's help on this project. It's been fantastic. Let me get some texture on this map with Chechu or whoever. It's, it's going to yeah, look better. Yeah, I'm not yet. an artist, right? So, no, no, no. This, this looks good. Yeah. And, and I love this stuff, you know, yes. to, to give it character. Yes. So um, what you're referring to is what we call right now just the sandbox um, relative to what a lot of our forces call that area of the world that they're deployed in. Um, And it's going to be a six-player coin game. And I've actually started this one uh, before Labyrinth 3, but then put it on the shelf for a little bit to kind of meet some production schedules and some interest in getting the next uh, expansion out for Labyrinth and and a lot was happening at the time with Donald Trump and with the collapse of ISIS, and we wanted to capture it real time. So um, 
what this will be is a six-player coin game heavily focused on both countries. So it's, you have a civil war going across both borders. Iraq has got an insurgency going on. Syria's got multiple factions in civil war with ISIS that just popped up in the middle of all this chaos and grew very rapidly from global support. And uh, then you have the United States reaction to it, not just the U.S., but also Russian intervention in the Syria. Um, and then the Western powers in Europe also joining in. The Gulf states play a role as well. Um, and so it, we model the six factions as well as six interventionist forces that come in. And uh, as I mentioned um, when we were talking earlier today, there's the cards themselves don't describe what order the factions go in. They can be played by either side. And they can be played in any order, meaning either whichever faction goes first could choose that if they wanted to. And the choice the faction makes this turn in terms of whether they grab resources or do major operations or take the event card will then determine what their path of choice is, order of choice, I should say, order of choice for the next card. So if you see a good card on deck, you might want to do minimal activities this turn so you're preparing for the offensive, so to speak, so you can capture that next event card. And so far, playtest has worked pretty good. So we, I'm, I'm, I had to pause on that. I'm only about 30, 40 cards in. I need to develop the rest of the deck. And then, and the other thing, too, is <clears throat> we have insurgent forces as well as government forces. They use the exact same player aid card. So all four insurgent factions, both government factions, they use the same card. So if you're in a less than six-player environment and you're playing multiple factions, which I think that'll be the case most of the time, you'll be able to very easily switch between factions without having to wonder what what is the special capability of this one what you know it's it's a very quick playing game in that sense and in addition halfway through the game isis changes from an insurgent faction to a government faction which they did historically and then of course that's when they failed is uh, when they became exposed in in that sense so much harder to hide when you're a government. Yes. <laughs> Territory to administer, et cetera. Right. So my hope is to have uh, <clears throat> a playable version of that at the next GMT weekend at the warehouse and marching towards that goal. So what are the biggest challenges for you on that? Right now, <laughs> uh, getting more event cards. It's it's much more focused than Labyrinth was, which was more of a geopolitical area. So I'm just doing a ton of research on the Syrian Civil War and the Iraqi Civil War. Um, there's more action, of course, on the Syrian side of the border than there's in the Iraqi. I'm trying to make it balanced. I'm trying to make it so that you could also just do either country individually. That's a little tougher to do. And then I'm also thinking retroactively of not doing an expansion going into the future, but backwards to the U.S. invasion of Iraq. The map would allow that to be portrayed there. And when I show the map to veterans, they're very quick. Oh, I served here. I served there. You know, they'll point to the map and the locations they served at. And there isn't really a game, on, at least not in the coin series, covering the insurgency that occurred after, you know, 2004 timeframe when the U.S. had solidified the country and now this insurgency came up in opposition. So. Have you played um, Battle for Baghdad? No, you've told me about it before. Right, so we, we that. put that together, put it on the table last Monday. Three of us played it. Uh, clearly deserves five or six, but it's uh, it's an interesting that's a six factions game problems. as well, isn't it? It is six factions, yeah. right? I can okay. name. I can think. I can name five: uh, Sunni Shia, I think Al Qaeda, NGOs, U.S. government, and Iraqi government. So that's that's six. Okay. So so uh, asymmetry in victory conditions, um, and then of course you have to pick your own alliances as you go, which is kind of cool. Yeah, it, right. it does have a diplomacy feel towards it. it. It does. In the game we played, we had the government, the Iraqi government, and then Sunni and Shia, and the Sunni and Shia worked together. And the government set off weapons of mass destruction on two occasions. So, <laughs> so uh, but but it's you know it's 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 uh, it's funny in that regard. But it, but it's an interesting study of what happened after the invasion, right? Uh, at least shortly after the invasion. And and I love anytime you have a problem where you have four, five, six, seven factions at the table. I love I love that. I just think that's the best. And I think that's what's going to happen with your game. I mean, you know, if, if, if Liberty or Death was different because it thought, hey, there are more people at the table than just the British and the, and the Patriots, here are some others, and, and figure it out, you're, you're going to do that for in spades with Sirius. So I'm really looking forward to that. So that's good. So recently, you and I were able to knock out a bucket list <laughs> item. So I'm going, to, I'm going to take you back to the American Revolution, and uh, with the game uh, that that you helped uh, design, help develop as well, uh, 
campaigns of 1777. I submitted the idea to Decision Games, and they put it out to a vote for a vote for their to their subscribers, which is a cool process. And the subscribers adopt accepted it, and so I started work on that. And at the same time. You in parallel uh, agreed to do the articles for the magazine about that whole campaigns of 1777, and then Terry Leeds agreed to do the map, and so it was fun for the three of us who live here in San Diego to work together on what, in effect, was a bucket list item. So, I'd love to hear your thoughts in the, on the article and 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 the history. Yeah, thanks, Harold. So uh, I remember, I think it was over two years ago that we first played the game and we were making decisions. Was it going to be a bucket of dice game? I, you know, all the, the combat system evolved, the probability tables, etc. But I loved, I've, I've always enjoyed the, the British strategic situation at the end of 1776 and the beginning of 1777. They had so many cards they could play and rivalries played out and ultimately their year of decision went the wrong way it didn't produce a decisive result by any means and you had the rivalry between Howe and Burgoyne and um and then the the government back in London um and it just did not go at all how they wanted but the game allows players to experiment with other choices and you've done that very artfully including the Mohawk Hudson Valley as a potential campaign location um Philadelphia it's just fantastic the Hudson River do you come down through Canada? Do you sail your forces to another place and start from there? I enjoyed doing the research on it and writing the historical article. It came out much longer than I thought it would be, but I learned in much greater detail the intricacies of the smaller battles that surrounded the campaign. And I think that comes out well and, and helps players who are playing the game have a greater interest in it and an understanding of the, the choices that were being made and the force levels that were involved. It's a curious time in, in the American Revolution and, and fun and and between your article and the graphics in the article and Terry's map, right, which is topographically correct, yep, <laughs> if that's a word. So, so it it allows you to see the intention of the British, how that highway, which was important during the French and Indian War, was so critic could have been so critically important if they had made the linkage, and cut off the the Patriots in the north. So. Um, so it's 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 cool and it was fun so much fun working with you on that. The other connection that I'll make that's kind of funny is that you you're part of a game group that you've played in since high school. Yes. Which uh and and you know I didn't grow up here. I was just luckily introduced to it. <laughs> but the 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 patriarch of that group is Ken McMillan, who's good for one of our, both of our good friend sweetest guy in the world. Ken is a ma- was a math teacher at your high school, right? Yeah. So yeah, let me pick up the story from yeah, there. Yeah, please. So uh, the, it was the Vista High School Games Club, uh, Vista High Panthers, and myself and Roberto Chavez, a good friend of mine, we both graduated in 1985 from Vista High. But in, even in middle school, we were going attending the games club at Vista High because uh, at the time, ninth grade was not part of it. So even the eighth graders were allowed to come. And uh, uh, Mr. Jones had a locker full of games. It was all the old Havilland Hill titles. And we, these little tiny kids, would come and just have a great time playing Panzer Leader bunch of other games battle of the bulge etc and in my freshman year uh roberto was playing with ken a game called wooden ships and iron men which i didn't know anything about didn't know anything about the fighting you know, sale days at all and i would come in at lunch and watch those two guys play and then in 10th grade ken was my teacher for playing in solid geometry i am sure i should have gotten a d in that class but somehow i squeaked out with a b and so i've been a great game player with ken ever since <clears throat> Yeah, you have a debt. <laughs> I do. And he had a computer lab that was associated with his game room, or, or excuse me, his his classroom. And every day for lunch, we would brown bag it and play games. We'd play advanced, well, it wasn't advanced civilization, but regular civilization, Amoeba Wars, Hexagony, a bunch of different games from that Avalon Hill time period. And uh, he had his students that would come in faithfully and play, and uh, it was fun. It's It's even cooler that you were all together now. We still are. Yeah. Yeah. We still, I, you know, I played I played a game last week with Roberto and Ken. And I live less than half a mile from Ken's house. <laughs> yeah, that's great. It's so good. So to, to pull that back around to 1777, we we chose to do a bucket of dice concept, and which I, which I love, and I have, I, you know, I have a math degree, so I have tons of math reasoning as to why that works. But emotionally, some wargamers hate that, don't like it, don't like rolling a bunch of dice. 
So I called Ken, my 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 favorite math war gamer, and then in, and my buddy O'Shane Balloon, who's a Cornell mathematician, lives in the Pacific Northwest, and I said, guys, can we turn this into? Can we turn a bucket into a CRT? And so we we traded numbers back and forth, the three of us math heads mm-hmm. trading numbers continually as to what a CRT, based on the roll of two six-sided dice, so, you know, the, the normal curve that develops from adding two, six, two six-sided dice together, and ended up with an optional combat loss table that's in the back, but it comes from Ken as well. So so Ken is also in this, uh, in this and, and uh, I get, delivered him his his uh, playtest copy uh, of the game last week when I saw him. So it's funny how um, how all this comes back around. Yeah, Ken, of course, is a big fan of railroad games and um, is designing one uh, in the 18XX series that's tied towards the railroad expansion in the western part of the United States. I think the game is called 1863. It's not published, of course, but uh, just love it. And, of course, May 10th, just a few, few you know, five days ago, 150th anniversary of the slamming of the Golden Spike and Promontory Point in Utah. Uh, what a neat event that was. Can't believe it's been that long. That's pretty cool. And you were close to that when that happened. Um, or you were, were, you, were you in Utah at the time? Oh, for that, I missed Not the, 150 yeah, years ago. Yeah, I was going to say, boy, Harold, I'm really old. <laughs> <laughs> no, but my son lives really close. He's only 30 miles away. Right. He works for Northrop Grumman there by, by Tremont in Utah. I was right. part of the old Morton Thiokol facility. And, and congratulations so. are in order because it's not just your son, but also your grandson yes. is there. Yes, he's just over two months so, old. I'm a new grandparent. Grandpa Trevor. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Thank you. Congratulations. So what else? Uh, what else are you working on? What's 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 next for you? Uh, you know, I mean, I, 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 it's hard to ask because you've just laid out so much uh, that you're going. So it's a, kind of a silly question, but I'll ask it nonetheless. Yeah, you know, I uh, still heavily involved as a volunteer in Boy Scouts of America. And there's a lot going on there that's taken my time. I'm in a significant, highly visible leadership role. Responsibility, yeah. yeah, for San Diego Imperial Council and, and also nationwide. Um, so that's taken a lot of my time up, but. Uh, I'm, I'm as you as you know I've I've written articles that have been published in C3I magazine last four issues each of them has an article or two from me, and so I'm continuing that pace. I've I've got a counterfactual history article on uh, a hypothetical of if the if the Japanese Navy had been more secure in their approach to the Midway Island and found the American fleet first, and instead the exchange of carriers was three to one the other direction instead of four to one. Um, then uh, how that might have impacted the length of World War II. And so we're going to study that using Empire of the Sun. And an old favorite game of mine, Victory in the Pacific, we'll do both of those together in a counterfactual manner. I'm also, I come up with another article that's already done on alternative drop locations for Normandy, excuse me, for um, Holland 44. So Mark Herman's, or Mark Simonich's game that was published last year right. on the pair of drops. And before that, you did a Market Garden article, right? Um, I It was, um, I did. It was actually not in C3I. It was in... Um, operations magazine and it was the idea of using multiple playings of the same game for operational research and operational research is something in the military and the think tank worlds of trying to solve uh, military problems by repeated examples of this for example in world war ii they found out that airplanes that use tracer ammunition if pilots who use tracer ammunition to line up their sights would, only, would get less hits than those who used their regular sights because the ballistics of tracer ammo was different than the ballistics of the bullets that did not have tracer ammo or you know the phosphorus associated with it. And so that was discovered through operational research through repeated firings and combat performance. Um, so um, going into that, we, we were testing market, our market garden and an operational uh, approach of instead of doing the historical pair of drops of the, the 82nd, 101st, and the 6th Airborne all in the first day, uh, instead, do a carpet approach where you drop the 101st first, secure those bridges, then the 82nd on day two, and then the British on day five. And what we found in playing that more repeated times is the Allied casualties are far less in doing that. Uh, it was very interesting. You know, you don't, you, the, the British division is not trapped on the wrong side of the Rhine. It's uh, usually, but at the same time, it allowed the Germans to position forces significantly and make sure that Arnhem Bridge is not taken. So it was a testing that uh, allowed us to use operational research to find out how to way to fight that battle, get the same result with far fewer casualties, but it wasn't a game winner by any means. 
So. So, so you mentioned these articles, and I, I'm thinking you actually have an article that was in the general. I mean, you've been writing for years <laughs> on this topic. And, you know, it, it, you could almost argue it was one of the first articles on bots. I was testing. I, I love the game Conquistador, one of my favorites. And then New World came out, which was a simplified version of it. I was headed up to Avalon Con in 1993 and wanted to win that tournament really bad. And so... It was just, I was married in 91. It was me and my wife playing the game. Of course, it's a six-player game. You can't do that with two people. And uh, you know, Sally's strategy was uh, sail around to California and wait for real estate prices to come and rise up and get her gold that way. And <laughs> 400-year strategy. Take, so, take thousands of acres. Yeah, maybe. totally. <laughs> so um, what I did is I came up with non-player nations, which was actually a concept in Empire... They had non-player nations there, and uh, and I, I came up with the same concept. And so the idea was you could play a six-player game of New World with just you as one of the nations, and then the other five nations would be governed randomly. Now, it didn't—and I called them non-player nations. It, they weren't bots, They and they were purely reactive to how well the, the player was doing. Or if one of the other bots was—non-player nations was winning, it would react to that too. But it was a dice roll concept, you know, two dice to decide what they would do. It was a very simple thing to do because in the game you you kind of send each turn you just send stuff to the new world and see what happens. But so that was my first article in the, the general. I share so. your affinity for Conquistador. It's one of my favorites. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah, it is yeah. a good one. It is a good one. It's complicated, but it's a good one. I got a bunch of other designs coming up. Yeah, yeah. Let's hear it. what else. What, <laughs> tell me what, what what do you have? Tell me more. So we talked about Labyrinth Three. That's going to be my project for this year. Then Syrian Coin uh, for next year. I've already got ideas for years three and four coming out. Then um, I've talked with Mark Simonich. I, I really would like to do a game in his World War II series. Uh, you know, this is a bucket list item of mine. I've not designed a game that has hexagons in it. I did design a few scenarios for great campaigns, the American Civil War, um, that Ed Beach took over from Joe Balkowski, and there, those are published in, in, in past issues of the, of the General and uh, also uh, a, a copy of The Skirmisher published 20 years ago um but a world war ii operational game with hexagons and so i proposed to him the idea about a year ago at gmt about taking ukraine 43 and building the other half of the map so in that game you see the southern half of the bulge of the kursk and the soviet offensive um uh, in the south um just north of the bulk of the of the black sea what i would do is put the other half the smolensk battle that occurred and so you could play that battle by itself, which was actually a quite a historic German defense as well that ultimately collapsed just like the one in the south. But you could also do both at the same time and, and switch forces between them. It'd be a much larger map. You'd probably play it on a ping pong table, maybe a table like the one we've got here, but much um, much more. You'd ha you essentially would have half of the Russian front at the Ukraine 43 scale. Interesting. So that would probably be my third game. And then my fourth game, and... Uh, been a, a project of mine for 20 years and i'm really excited about this we'll, we'll see if it ever comes to fruition but uh i was always fascinated with we the people and then later on you know washington's war in 1776 and you look at, at that topic of the american revolution and then you put the topography of vietnam over it and the same game system there is a game based on for the people or on washington's war covering the vietnam conflict oh, wow with the peace cards, with the one year per turn, the reinforcements that come in. But I think you could add more flavor to it. You could probably mix in elements of Hannibal in terms of you have the four different core zones in Vietnam, and you would need to, based on control of the of the provinces within those, you would have political adjustments just like you do in Hannibal. And then um, maybe add in some of the more larger operational cards that you see in the Napoleonic War, which goes up to six factors of operations and, and the maneuvering units. Now, the interesting thing when you think about doing a card-driven game on a modern topic, when you're basing on Washington's War, Hannibal, Napoleonic War, those all have leaders in it. Vietnam, you know, you didn't have Westmoreland leading, you know, 50,000 troops in one major battle. It just wasn't done that way. Stand up Westmoreland. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Radio communication, it was all, you know, battalion level and smaller for the most part. So um, I've got to come up with that. That's the piece I'm struggling with, how to represent that. I, mean, I think it'll be about a, a battalion to brigade level game, probably brigade level. You know, Vietnam was done at the battalion level, just a monster in, in pieces. It'll be more detailed than we're seeing in Hearts and Minds. You know, Hearts and Minds was just reprinted. 
probably about the same amount of detail that you're seeing in Fire in the Lake, but it'll be based on the card-driven game system, a two-player game that we are familiar with, but like Washington's War. Wow. So that's four years out. Love it. Love <laughs> it. Well, I, I hope that you get through all that before you <laughs> I think that'll be, that'll be a very productive period if, uh, if you do pull that off. Thank you. So I was going to also ask you in closing, uh, we've talked about what you're playing, but um, what else? Are you, are you reading anything interesting? Have you read anything interesting in the last year or so? Yeah, a lot of my reading is in Osprey publications because they're so good for, and, and, and uh, Volko will tell you the same thing. He did this with his Nevsky. The, the Osprey campaign series are just fantastic for game designers to pick up their information. So I've done a lot of that on both the Russian front and uh, and on Vietnam as well. Um, nothing jumps out to me as a book that just has hit me in the last year. But I'll tell you, I'm, I'm going to bed at 9 o'clock at night, and most of my reading is five minutes before my eyelids close. <laughs> right, right, right. Good for you. So, Good for you. Do you have an early day? Is that what you do? Yeah, I do. You know, I, I, professionally, I'm a project manager for the Navy Space Warfare Command in San Diego and Old Town, and I'm usually on site by 6.30 in the morning, which right. traveling from North County is an hour-long commute. So right, right, early. right. Yeah. But, but a better commute than if you waited an hour. Oh, yeah, completely. Two, right? <laughs> no question. Yeah. Let me just say, I appreciate you taking the time. It's I talk to you all the time. It's great fun, but kind of cool to to do it in this format and to hear what your thoughts are about the games and, and uh, all the cool stuff you're working on. I'll, I'll remind you, you and I have talked about one other game that I'm sad didn't make your list, but you and I are going to work on a game related to Hube's pocket. Uh, that's right. <laughs> so 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 that's that's on the table. I'll just remind you, and maybe it's five years out, after you get through your four-year plan but uh but something else but i appreciate you taking the time to talk about this and to go through it it's been good fun and and uh i, I look forward to play testing some of this stuff me too thank you harold looking forward to it thanks so that's a wrap for this podcast I'll publish some notes and references on my website, conflictsimulations.com. Join the Herald on Games Guild on BoardGameGeek for early release content. Leave me a comment with your thoughts and ideas. Thanks to the Raleigh, North Carolina-based band, Funkaponya, for the intro and outro music. Check them out on Facebook, Spotify, or iTunes. I'll close with a special thanks to Trevor Bender. And that's it for me. As always, I'm looking for a way to use that six-player coin model on liberty or death. Maybe add the Spanish and the Russian Empire. And I'll be back soon.